So, Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Just ask for your presence here this morning. Just thank you for who you are. Ask, Lord, that you'll anoint my lips once again and that you will open our hearts and our minds that we'll be able to receive what you have for us. And uh, just bless everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look. Um, familiar story today, if I can find it. <laughs> Genesis 22. I want to talk about Abraham and Isaac. <clears throat> and again, I want to reiterate uh, something. When we're looking at Scripture, uh, and particularly when we're dealing with what's called the Torah by the Jews, which is the first five books, basically. It's, it's bigger than that, but for all intents and purposes, it's the first five books of the Bible. The word Torah, unfortunately, in the West has been translated as law. So when you read it in the New Testament, you think Paul's talking about law or legalism, good and bad, do's and don'ts. When in fact, the Hebrew word that he's using is Torah, and the word Torah means the teaching. So it encompasses all of the teaching, not just moral behavior. Make sense? So in Genesis, what you find are what we probably would be better off calling sacred stories that were there to inform the Jewish people about who they were, but also it's there to um, elevate your own consciousness, your own awareness of who God is, to lead you into a deeper relationship with Him. So that when you're reading the story of Adam and Eve, you should be able to find yourself in that story in a way that empowers you. When you're reading the story of Cain and Abel, and Cain murdering his brother Abel, um, you're able to find parts of yourself. Uh, John does this brilliantly in one of his letters. He says, don't be like Cain when he's talking about having evil in your heart towards a brother. Make sense? So the idea is, is to read them from a deeper level that empowers you to know something about God so that it becomes, as David said, your word or the Torah or the word of God is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet, right? Make sense? So we go a little bit deeper than just looking at the surface of the story, all right? And there are little nuances there that you can catch that are that are pretty amazing. So familiar story, but let's look at it a little bit differently than maybe you've ever heard it before. <clears throat> Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, it's important that he says it that way, then on the third day, once you know this phrase, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw a place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. This is one of the first places, if not the first place, I don't remember. I think this is the first place that the word worship is used in connection with God. Because the word worship just means, in the Hebrew, just means to show honor and, and um, homage and respect. 
So there are other places where this word is used from one human to another, but it's always of a lesser to a greater. So they might pay homage to a king, or they might pay homage to uh, somebody who's a great person. And it's the same word that's used there. So it's not this idea of sort of idol worship and making somebody your god. It's just this idea of uh, showing respect and paying homage to someone. Make sense? And that's an important part of this story. Uh, what verse was I in? Thank you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So Isaac is carrying the wood of the burnt offering. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, the word for there is not in the original text. So actually what it says is God himself will provide Uh, God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on your son uh, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes. Notice that phrase. Lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And the Lord and Abram uh, called the name of this place, the Lord will provide, which is a bad translation. It should be the Lord who sees. The Lord who sees. He called the name of the place, the Lord who sees. As it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, the provide there is, is the correct translation. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand on which is upon the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young man, and rose and went together to Beersheba, And Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. Now it came to pass, uh, anyway, I don't need to finish reading the rest of that. So you're kind of familiar with the story. So let me put the old spin, the old spin on the story uh, and how we, we might apply this. Isaac is the promised son, right? You know the story. Abraham and Sarah weren't able to have children. Abram's name, interestingly enough, meant exalted father, (laughs) And when God changed his name to Abraham, it became the father of many nations, right? But he didn't have any children. And so at one point in Genesis 15, he says, Lord, what are you going to give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is going to be one Eleazar of Damascus or one of the servants in the house was going to be the heir. And he says an heir, that this will not be an heir, but someone who comes from your own uh, loins, right? Your own body. So then Abraham tell Sarah about this and Sarah gets this idea because she knows that her womb is, you know, she's past the age of childbearing. So she says, well, take Hagar, my handmaiden, 
and he gets, she gives birth to Ishmael, right? And then there, uh, God says, no, that's not the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a totally supernatural thing. So he gives birth to Isaac. So even though Ishmael is born first, because Isaac is born to Sarah, whom he loved, Isaac is considered the firstborn, and Isaac is considered the heir because of the culture of that day, right? And so the way we would maybe read this is God gives you something. God uh, gives you something that you cherish. Isaac's name, interestingly enough, means joy and laughter. So God gives you something that brings you joy, brings you uh, whatever. And uh, God wants to test you to see how much you love him, how much you're willing to worship him. So you have to be willing to take your Isaac and lay your Isaac on the altar to prove to God how much you love him, to prove to God that you're not putting anything that's bringing joy in your life above him, right? (laughs) And then that's kind of how you're told to apply it to your life. And of course, once he lays his Isaac down, God, you know, he raises the knife and God says, no, don't, don't mess with the child. <laughs> right? Because now I know that you fear me. So how many of you have ever found yourself in a place in life where you've tried to apply that and maybe you took your Isaac and you raised the knife on your Isaac and God didn't say stop? <laughs> Anybody ever been there? <laughs> or, um, uh, what, what might be an, or God takes something that you loved and you're told, well, you know, that's a sacrifice or something to test your love for God. Any, anything like that? And I, I think when we, re- it's natural for us to read the story that way because we don't live in a culture that practiced sacrifice and really understand what sacrifice is all about. And so we, we get this sort of, I hate to say it again, it offended a lot of people when I used it a couple weeks ago. Thus, our, some people haven't returned. Um, <laughs> but that's okay, I don't care. Um, but, uh, well, I don't, I don't mean it like that. I just mean, great, we'll have a long conversation after. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, the phrase that, that upset everybody. Um, so we're kind of back to this whole monster God idea. I mean, what kind of a God gives you something, gives you a gift for your enjoyment, and then wants you to prove your love to him by sacrificing it? Yeah. I was talking to somebody last week who shall remain nameless. <laughs> but uh, this person had uh, been in a car accident and made it out, survived. So some of you already know who it is. And had a prophet, uh, someone who pro- professed to be a, a prophet liar, tell him, uh, you know, God... Uh, no, they didn't profess that. That's just what they were. Um, because they, they told this person, God uh, caused that accident to get your attention because you walked away from God and God wants to get your attention so that you'll come closer to Him. And then said, if you don't repent, if you don't come closer to God then uh, the next time you're going to get another accident, but you won't survive it, God's going to kill you. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's kind of the way that we've portrayed. Now, here's the problem with that stuff. So, like, we can look at that and say, that clearly was not from God. But when you're the recipient of that, you got to understand that a car accident creates trauma, um, which puts you not at your best mentally and emotionally anyway, and makes you very vulnerable, Right? And so when you speak into those traumatic places, and this was just a couple weeks removed from the accident, 
when you speak into those traumatic places, it can get down in a person's subconscious. So that if you've ever been in a bad accident where it was a rollover or something where you, you, you really maybe could have lost your life, then you know the next few times for a month, few months and whatever after that when you go to drive, you get a little nervous. I remember uh, one, of the, one of my favorite testimonies is my sister Jackie when she was, uh, gosh, when did that happen to you, Jackie? You got in that car accident. Huh? 1988. She uh, was, and you know, you got to remember the 80s. Um, we're not as safety conscious as we are today, right? And I'm just going to share it because it's a great story. And uh, so 88, I would have been sophomore in high school, I guess. She was going to college in Denver. And uh, I've never shared this story, but I'm just going to go ahead and share it. And um, so I'm sophomore in high school. And I remember um, we were leaving and going to Phoenix. And I think, did you go to Phoenix too and fly back early? Yeah, she, so we all go to Phoenix. And I remember when she left to get on the plane to go back, I had a very distinct impression that's the last time you're ever going to see your sister. Scared me to death. I did all kinds of praying and stuff for her. Uh, and we come back a couple days later. And I remember, for whatever reason, I've flown a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. I think I have, and this, it doesn't count all my flights, but I think on just United alone, I have about 470,000 frequent flyer miles. So I've had a lot of plane trips. I've never been on a plane where coming home was as turbulent and as rough as that flight. And it's like the first, I think it's like the first or second time I'd flown in my life, right? And that plane is just dipping and dying, and the, the stuff's coming o- open. If any of you've ever been in a flight like that, the, the baggage thing on the top's coming open, and people are screaming, and I'm sitting here thinking, I'm going to die. <laughs> so then I'm thinking, I heard that. This is going to be the last time you see your sister. I thought, well, maybe that means I'm going to die, you know, in a plane accident. And I had messed with a Ouija board that summer, by the way, because, uh, you know, Parker Brothers, it's a game, right? And, and, and so we're playing with this. I promise I'm going somewhere with this, I think. Um, we're playing with this Ouija board and, uh, and I really upset that spirit for some reason. Uh, I don't remember what I did, but it came after me with a vengeance. Anybody, you know what a Ouija board is? You know how it works? So it moves on its own, starts talking to you and stuff. I mean, it's very spiritually real. Not necessarily good. Um, it's demonic. And so, you know, here we're, I'm doing this thing and I'm talking to this, this spirit and it comes after me with a vengeance. And one of the things it said to me, this is just this summer, said, uh, uh, one of you, cause we were asking what we were gonna be when we grow up, right? And they said, one of you here won't live to have a career. And, uh, and we're like, well, you know, and I'm like, I don't wanna know who it is. And I'll never forget the Ouija board spells out really fast. Why not, Aaron? It's you. Scared me to death. So I never, ever, ever messed with the Ouija. It was actually the grace of God because I thought it was so cool. I was going to come home from my cousins and go out and buy a Parker Brothers Ouija board and really get into it. But after that experience, no way. So I had just come off that summer from that. I'm on this thing. I had this impression. I'm never going to see my sister again. And But all of a sudden in the middle of that, I, I became aware of her situation and I started praying for her even in the middle of that. And I remember we landed in Pueblo because that was back when America West was flying out of Pueblo direct flights to Phoenix. And we land in the Pueblo and we get paged at the airport uh, call for my mom and dad. And so come to find out what had happened was my sister Jackie had been in a really bad um, car accident with two semis. 
And so what had happened to her was that she, and this was back in the 80s when we never wore our seatbelts, right? I didn't. And apparently Jackie didn't either. And she's, she's on her way up to Denver and she gets this image in her head. Now, they used to, one of the best classes we ever took was driver's education. Any of you remember driver's education? And you remember how they showed you all those horror flicks about, you know, the decapitations and the horrible things that could happen? And all of a sudden this one scene from driver's ed pops up in her head where a car had gone underneath a, a semi and it made her nervous enough that she fastened her seatbelt. So she gets into Denver traffic and there are two semis following each other. You can shout it out if I get it wrong. Two semis following each other, and she's kind of passing them or something. Anyway, she's in the other lane, and one of them, like, stops suddenly or something. But for whatever reason, one of the semis changes lanes and goes over the, the top of her. And so, however it happened, between the median, uh, concrete median, and the semi, and her, and whatever, she gets banged around a few times. And eventually, she goes, her car goes underneath the semi, and it takes the passenger side, I'm sorry, the driver's side roof just caves in. And while she's going through all this, it's happening in slow motion for her. And she sees herself begin to go underneath the semi. And she says, I need to duck. And she lays down in the seat. And it was the fact that, she, number one, she had her seatbelt on. And number two, that she laid down in the seat that she was able to survive that accident. She came out completely unscathed from it, completely. Goes back later to... Uh, collect some of her things, and in her purse was a cross that she had made at church camp that she kept with her, and on the cross it said, Jesus saves, and a couple of items had spilled out of her purse, and that was one of the only things that had spilled out of her purse, kind of as a a message to her that Jesus had saved her life. It's a great story, right? But I remember for a long time after that, her being kind of nervous about following semis or being in blind spots, you know, we'd ride with her and she'd go to pass a semi and, and, you know, floor it to get around that semi before it had a chance to change lanes or whatever. So, so you, you suffer from that kind of a trauma, right? And so then this person tells the, this other person, um, you know, you, you walked away from God. If you don't come back, then God's going to kill you. And, I know she didn't believe it. She called me up. She said, look, I don't believe this, but I'm still struggling with it. And the problem is because you're so vulnerable and then somebody says that and they say that it's coming from God, it impacts your subconscious in a way that normally it wouldn't otherwise. And it just gets in there and kind of starts playing on you, right? Because then you start wondering, well, maybe I'm not right with God. Maybe I'm not. And, and so I'm like, well, you know, do you feel like you backslid? No. In fact, I was praying on my way up when I had the accident and... So we walked through a number of things, and I said, let me, let me ask this question. I said, if you, if you had a boyfriend, let's just put it in this context. You had a boyfriend who was interested in you, uh, fell for you, love at first sight, started buying you gifts and, and different things, and you gave your heart and you started a relationship, but at some point you decided you wanted your space, you wanted your freedom, you wanted your whatever in that relationship, and so you didn't talk to him for a while. Maybe you didn't return text messages. Maybe you didn't re- return phone calls. And that guy didn't see you for a while. And that guy says, well, I'll show her. I'll uh, cut the brake line. I'll sabotage her car so that she'll get in a car accident and she'll be weak and vulnerable and want to come back to me. And then if that didn't work, I'll take it to the next level and I'll make sure I, I, I do something even worse to her to try to get her attention to get her to come back to me. Now, in our society, guys, what kind of man is that, ladies? 
Is that the kind of person you want your daughter to date? Is that the kind of person you want your daughter to marry? See, when we put it in that context, we can realize that's a really toxic person. I mean, like, you, you should learn right off the bat, that's not a good person to be with. Are you, are you with me? If you don't love me, I'll make you. Bless God. Right? But we put that on God all the time. We put that on God all the time. If you fall away, God's going to cause something bad to happen to get your attention. We would put that person in jail. Right? Imagine a father that did that with their kids. Son, don't play in the street. If you play in the street, you might get hit by a car. And they go out and play in the street. Forget about it, go out and play in the street. And dad gets in his car and says, I'll show them a lesson. <laughs> Disobey me. I'll teach you. But that is people's concept of who God is. What, what kind of father would... And see, Jesus said this about God. He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your heavenly father give to those that ask? And so I was talking to this person, and that's what, that's what I told him. I said, would you want to date somebody like... Oh, no way. Does that person love you? No, I'd get away from them. Well, if a boyfriend being evil knows how to give you good gifts, how much more will God give to those that ask him? And so it becomes very clear that cannot be, that's not a God of love. But that, unfortunately, that is kind of the, 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 the concepts that we've put up for people. So we've put up for people this idea that God is sort of like that, right? And we are constantly having to prove ourselves to him or prove our devotion or prove our love. And after all, we're rotten to the core to begin with. Thank you, St. Augustine, right? We're rotten to the core. We have impulses that are against God. And so we end up with this kind of framework that says, I'm unacceptable the way I am to God. And God can't deal with my issues. Right? And God can't even handle me getting blessings because he's afraid. He's a jealous God. He's afraid you might get too much enjoyment out of that instead of from him. And so he's got to make sure he teaches you a lesson. Right? So we, we impose that on the text. Here, we kind of get the idea that God loved Abraham, God blessed Abraham, but God had to test Abraham so he could prove his devotion to him. In a sort of monster God sort of way. Does that make sense to you? Now, there are a couple things going on. One of the things that's going on here, you've got to understand that in... Let's, let's take the Bible back into its own context, okay? Into its ancient context. Abraham comes out of a place called Chaldea, and we know from archaeological digs and stuff about the Chaldeans, one of the things we know about them was that you were required to sacrifice your firstborn son to the God that you served. It was a requirement in order to keep the gods happy. So on the one hand, what's happening in the story is God is educating Abraham through him, the Jewish people, and through him, all of humanity, that God is not that kind of God. That's why he stops it. So he asks him to do something that's common in the culture of the day to demonstrate the fact, I am not like that. To begin to differentiate himself from the way people thought about him. Got it? That's the first thing that's going on. But the second thing that's happening there is we don't understand sacrifice. See, we think of sacrifice as giving up something or something that causes us pain. How many of you were taught as believers that you had to die to yourself? 
Okay, a couple of you. <laughs> I got to die to self. I remember I was talking to a pastor. I was counseling a pastor overseas on Skype. And I remember I asked him, I said, he, and he kept saying, well, I know I've got to die to self. He said, all these desires and things is hard he want to do. But, but I know I've got to die to self. I know I've got to die to self. And I said, where, where in the Bible? I mean, how much in the Bible do you think it talks about dying to self? And I'll never forget his reaction. He's a pastor. He knows the scriptures. And he goes, oh, it's got to be hundreds. And I said, let's do something. Let's open up a Bible search engine. And I want you to just type die to self in a Bible search engine. And you know how many times it came up? Not a single time. Not a single time. It's imposed upon the text because of the way we understand certain scriptures because we filter it through the monster God idea and the we're just trash and unacceptable the way we are idea. Does that make sense to you? So what's happening here in the story? First of all, let's understand the ancient idea of an altar and the ancient idea of sacrifice was not about suffering. It wasn't even about the suffering of the animal. The killing of the animal was incidental. What it was about was about giving a gift. Now, from an ancient perspective, and still from our perspective today, but it's a little bit stronger, has a little bit more teeth to it when you look at it from an ancient perspective. But God is invisible. Or he exists in the air. That's how people understood. So the word for breath in Hebrew, the word for spirit... The word for wind, it's all the same. Because they understood as God existing in the air, right? And in the invisible realm, and he existed, his home was in the heavens. So a burnt offering was not to deprive you of something. The reason the offering was burnt was you were taking the animal and transitioning it. You were giving it as a gift, just like if you went to a a tribal chieftain and you wanted to honor the tribal chieftain, and so you brought your best lamb, you would give it to that chieftain as a gift, and he would take it and make it part of his flock. You're dealing with a physical entity. But when you're dealing with God, you're dealing with a spiritual entity. So the idea is that you kill the animal, and then you burn it, and the soul of the animal goes up in the smoke uh, to be transitioned from the physical realm into the spiritual realm. Because you got to understand from a spiritual perspective, even for us, death is not the end. But we have a tendency in our culture to think of death as the cessation of existence. You cease to exist. But death is just a transition. It's just a transition out of the physical into the spiritual. From this world into the next world. From earth into heaven. Right? Got it? So when you're giving a gift, you're, you're, you're making a transition. You're giving something up to the heavens. You're transitioning that animal from this realm into that realm. The purpose of it was to open a spiritual gateway whereby there could be a transaction and something spiritual, spiritual power or spiritual blessing could come back to you. And so often in a burnt offering, whoever was offering it had to eat part of the offering because what it what would happen is is you would transition something into the spiritual realm with the expectation that god would trans uh that's the best way to say it uh release a spiritual energy if you will into the animal itself 
into the body of the, the physical body of the animal itself and would transition into you by you eating it. So that when you ate the lamb, you ate the presence. This ought to sound familiar to you if you're Catholic. When you ate the lamb, you ate the presence of the God that you worshipped or gave a gift to in order to receive some empowerment or some blessing back. So it was a place of exchange, or you might call it an energy exchange, where you brought something and gave it, and then God released something and it came back to you. And then the altar served as a gateway or a meeting place where these exchanges could take place. The altar served as the host, if you will, for the the energies of the God that was being worshipped and served. Does that make sense to you? Now put it in the context of this story. What, what Abraham is doing is transitioning Isaac from earth to heaven for a purpose. Now, whenever you read in scripture, it says, lift up your eyes. Abraham lifted up his eyes. Again, we read this as Westerners that are trapped in the physical realms. And we think he's talking about, well, I'm looking down here, looking down here. I look up, I see Megan sitting back there (laughs) because I lifted up my eyes. But just in this story, that doesn't make sense because, because he lifts up his eyes and sees what? A lamb caught in a thicket, right? But Isaac had been looking for an offering. Lord... We got the wood, we got the knife, we got the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? You can't tell me he's like, where's the lamb? And then later Abraham's like, oh, look, over there. No, when, when the Bible uses that term, and this is true throughout Scripture, I looked up every reference. Uh, this is part of my nerd factor. It's talking about spiritual sight or soul sight Or the ability to see into the heavenly dimensions. This is important. Because twice in this story, Abraham lifts up his eyes. First time he lifts up his eyes to go see the place where they're supposed to worship. The second time he lifts up his eyes and he sees the lamb caught in the thicket. Got it? Here's why this is important. What mountain does this happen on? Anybody know? Mount Moriah. Do you know why Mount Moriah is important to the Jews, even to this day? It's the mountain upon which Solomon built the temple. And why did the temple, why did they build the temple on Mount Moriah? Because the temple was meant to be the gateway between what was temporal and what was eternal, or between heaven and earth. It's the gateway. So that what was believed when the, when the high priest went behind the veil, what was believed was that the high priest transitioned himself into the heavens. Which is why in the book of Revelation you read about a temple in the heavens. Transitions himself into the heavens and does something. The word atone means to repair. He does something to repair the breach between heaven and earth caused by the sins of Israel so that the gateway stays open. And creation could be renewed the following year. 
The Day of Atonement, I mean, for all intents and purposes in the ancient culture, the Day of Atonement was a fertility ritual. Because they brought the harvest, and then what they did was God said if he accepted the sacrifice, then he would renew the rain for the coming year. See, we don't, we don't read the Bible like an ancient person. So God is asking for Isaac as a gift. He's not just trying to deny Abram of something. You see it? And so you can see something beautiful in there with Abraham because God asks for his son, his only son, whom you love. It's the gospel right there. Abraham's making a transaction with God that will ultimately cause God to send his son into the world as a sacrifice for humanity. Not for himself because of humanity. A gift. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Are you breathing? Now here's the interesting part. If I can find it again. Obviously when they go, Isaac and Abraham, it says the two of them went to the place where they were going to offer the sacrifice. But look at verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. I'm going to read that again. So Abraham returned to his young men. Abraham says, we will go up there to worship and we will come back to you. But Isaac never came back. The Bible specifically points that out. Where'd he go? He ascended. Wasn't the first time it ever happened. Back in Genesis, there's a guy named Enoch. Very small statements about Enoch. Just says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Did you know the book of Enoch was removed from your Bible? Do you know Jesus quotes from the book of Enoch? More than he quotes from other places in the Old Testament. Did you know? Did you know Jude quotes directly from the Book of Enoch? And for whatever reason, through the purges of the Scriptures, Enoch was removed. But the way we know it was part of the original canon, canon, is that the Ethiopian Church was totally unaffected by those purges. And when Westerners discovered, you know, went into Africa and they discovered Ethiopian Christians, they were shocked. And they they had said the book of Enoch is a myth, but they found a very devout group of Christians in Ethiopia and the book of Enoch was part of their sacred scriptures. And like good Europeans, they said, oh, that can't be, that can't be the right book of Enoch. What do they know? They're just savages or whatever. I'm sorry, but that's just how, how it went down. Until they made a discovery in Egypt also part of Africa, incidentally, 
They made a discovery in Egypt of the Nag Hammadi library that was thousands of years old, and they found the book of Enoch, and it matched perfectly with the copies of the book of Enoch that were in the Ethiopian canon. And so if you read the book of Enoch, then what you discover was that God was able, when it says he walked with God, it meant that he transitioned between the worlds. It meant that he would ascend into the heavens and walk with the angels, and then he would descend and bring things back to the earth. And then he would ascend into the heavens and walk with God, and then he would descend and come back to the earth until finally God just took him. And in tradition, in the Enoch tradition, this is free, nobody probably cares about this, but in the Enoch tradition, Enoch is transformed into the angel Metatron, who is the highest in the Jewish angelic order. So that even from an Orthodox Jewish perspective, the highest being besides Yahweh himself is a human being who's been glorified. Are you breathing? So the seed has to come through Isaac. So God takes Isaac. Because here's the thing. Here's the really interesting thing. Isaac doesn't appear in the story again at all. Until a couple chapters later, in chapter 26, I think it is. I have to look at my notes here so I give you the right reference. I'm sorry, 24. <clears throat> so if, if you just look at Genesis 24, the, the title for it is A Bride for Isaac. Abram sends a servant to go find a bride for Isaac. But Isaac has disappeared. When the servant finds the bride, who is Rebekah, it then suddenly... He shows back up. Because in verse 62 it says, Isaac came from the way of the well of, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that in the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the south country. Here's the interesting thing. The name, if, when you translate that, the word for well and the word for I in Hebrew are the exact same. Because your eyes are the wells out of which the tears come. Exactly the same. And the name La Rohi there, the well of La Rohi, is the God who sees. Now watch this. He goes up onto Mount Moriah where there's a gateway between heaven and earth and he offers up Isaac without killing him to God and Isaac ascends to the heavens and Abraham does not come back with him. But he calls the name of the place, not the Lord will provide. This is the mountain of the God who sees. Then the very next thing he does is he commissions a servant to go from his house to find a bride. And when the bride has been found at the well, then Isaac comes from the eye of the God who sees in order to marry Rebecca. So what you have is clearly a type of Christ. You have Isaac carrying his wood up the mountain just like Jesus carried the cross to Golgotha. You have Isaac, for all intents and purposes, dying and rising and ascending. 
Then you have Abraham, who in this sense can be a type of God the Father, sending a servant from his house who could be a type of the Holy Spirit to find a bride who's prepared and ready to marry Isaac when he returns. But this is not the second coming. This is all about the eye of the God who sees. Come with me to John and we'll be done. John, hopefully I can find it. Uh, Yeah, right here. Verse 19. Now, he just talked about the giving of the Holy Spirit a few verses before that. And in verse 19, he says, A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. Let me read that again. A little while longer and the world will see me no more. This is right before his crucifixion. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So here's the type. Isaac, as the type of Christ, goes to the altar and transitions and ascends. When Jesus died, he gave up his spirit. Right? Then the Holy Spirit is sent to bring the bride and the bridegroom together, and we put it off to the second coming, when all along Jesus said, the world will not see me, but you will see me. And and because I live, you will live. And in that day, you will know that I'm in the Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. Bringing us into that place of union and oneship, and where there's a relationship with God in the Spirit, by the Spirit, with Him, through the eyes of your heart, being enlightened and opened so that you can commune with him and know him. And all of that is embedded in the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And the sign of it is the lamb caught in the thicket. Why? Because Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. So the decision had been made before the foundation of the world that he would give his life in sacrifice for a bride. (laughs) Tell me the book's not inspired. (laughs) As some think I've claimed, which I have never claimed. Does that make sense to you? Can you see it? Now, bring it practically. Altars in your life and sacrifice and all that stuff is not about a cessation of existence. It's about a transition from a lower level of living to a higher level of living. And you're offering your money when you give it. You can be giving, if you do it correctly, you can give in such a way that there is an exchange that happens between you and God. Because your money represents your life energy. And when you keep that life energy to yourself, meaning you don't give any of it to God, and we don't burn it, just so you know. (laughs) 
But there's a difference in church between receiving an offering and taking an offering. We try to be very conscious. When we receive money here, there is a transmission, there is an exchange of energy that takes place between you and God. And teach that. And if there is no exchange of energy, then we're just taking your money. But if we receive it, we say, okay, Lord, we're going to put this to the best use we possibly can for your work. Then there's an energy exchange that takes place. And we've seen it over and over and over again in our lives. Not just for money. See, we we have this idea, you know, because really greedy preachers got up there and said, if you give $100, God will bless you back with 10000 And they're appealing to either your need or your greed. Sorry. I'm not saying that won't happen. I'm not saying that you get... There have been scores of times, scores and scores of times, when we've given money and had money come back to us in that way. But there's also been other times where we just knew we needed to give a certain amount of money for a particular blessing, for a particular breakthrough. And we would let God put that amount in our heart and we would offer it up in exchange for what God wanted to do. Not from a place of we got to pay God off to make him do what we want him to do. If that's the level you're thinking, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not even talking to you. <laughs> I'm not even talking to you. I give gifts to my wife, but I don't do it. I'm, I, I, and I might even do it on a romantic evening. But I'm not doing it thinking, oh, I'm going to pay her off and she's going to... I'm not giving to her expecting something in return. I mean, do, do you understand what I'm saying? It's a heart exchange. And it's the same thing with God. That when you bring something that you love, but you love God so much that you're giving Him something that you love. Have you ever given something that you love to someone you love? A child, uh, somebody? What did that do in the relationship? What did that do in your heart when you had something that you really loved and you gave it to someone that you love freely? And what happened when that person was able to receive that? Wow, I know this means a lot to you. Thank you for that. Did it cheapen the relationship? Or did it elevate the relationship? Because see, what God's after is that heart-to-heart connection being expressed in a practical way. So anything you're giving up, you're not giving it up from the standpoint of, I'm suffering for Jesus. I'm trying to prove my worth. I'm trying to prove my devotion. He's testing me. He's trying to get my attention, so I come back to him. (laughs) You see it? So I'm taking something I love, and I'm giving it to somebody that I love. Because I love them. And then God receives it and says, Oh, such a wonderful love gift. Let me pour out something from my heart back to you. And that's and in that way, we create an open heaven. We create an altar in our life where there can be an exchange and a flow. I would strongly encourage you, just to make it practical, I would strongly encourage you, if you don't have a place in your house that is sacred for you, where you meet with God, I would strongly encourage you to do that. And use that place only for that and meet with God in that place. It does something in your consciousness. Do you have to do that and meet with God? I can hear some of you, oh, that's religious. I don't have to do that and meet with God. I can meet with God anywhere. (laughs) I heard you thinking that. (laughs) 
but there's a building of the energy. Let me tell you about, I'll, I'll tell you about this. When, um, there was a, a season in my life, God was waking me up every morning, long before the sun came up. And I would go sit in the same place and just meet with God. And I would have encounters with God in that place. And the energy in that place built up. So that as soon as I would get down in that place, bam, I was in the presence of God. And he would start teaching me and talking to me. And this was, how long has my dad been gone? Three years? So this is three and a half years ago or three years ago, something like that. So Josiah is six, so he was three or four years old at the time, my son Josiah. And we're, one night we're up there, we're talking, some of you heard me tell this story before. And he says, Daddy, and he kept talking all day, Daddy, we've got to help the injured man. And he has such an imagination that I just think, you know, half the time I'm listening to his stories and cracking up. And then some of the time you're just doing something and you're like, you know, because trust me, Josiah will talk from the time he wakes up till 11 o'clock at night and be the center of attention and be thrilled. You know, and you just can't do life that way. And uh, so he's like, Daddy, we got to help the injured man. we got to help the injured man. Oh, yeah, son, sure, sure, sure. Finally, he's like, Daddy, we got to help the injured man. And then he's just talking, and we're doing something, and I start listening to him, and he says, Daddy, he's got holes in his hands. And, he, and we had never talked to him about the crucifixion story, not in depth, because we just think it's too traumatic for a little kid. And uh, he's got holes in his hands. He's got, he's bleeding from his forehead, he's bleeding from his back, and he's got holes in his feet. We've got to help the injured man. I said, where, and it caught my ear. I said, where is this injured man? He says, he says, this injured man is in our house, I'll show you. And I said, wait a minute, I said, I want to know more about these injuries. So he describes them again. So I look up, like, pictures of Jesus, you know, crucifixion pictures, something like maybe that. And I show him, like, kind of the cartoon. And he, no, 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 that's not it. So I get this idea in my head. Any of you ever heard of the stigmata? It's a, it's a, it's a thing that saints did throughout the ages. It's kind of a Catholic thing that's not limited just to Catholics, where a person manifests the wounds of Christ in their hands, their feet. You can Google it. So I Google stigmata, and I pull up pictures of real people with real wounds. And I start showing him these pictures, and I said, son, does it look like this? He said, yes, that's exactly what it looks like. And I said, where is this injured man? And he takes me down the stairs into the spot where I pray, into the chair. And he pointed and he said, the injured man is right here. And we talked to him about Jesus. And so at three, four years old, he starts establishing a connection towards Jesus. Can I tell you one more story? And I'll be done. Maybe you've heard this one. He comes home from Christian school and he's terrified. Terrified. Cause, and it's nobody's fault. It's just... That's why you've got to be careful how you introduce Bible stories to your kids. Because you see them through your nice little filters. They don't necessarily. He'd been terrified all day. I get home later and Julie's like, you need to talk to your son. I'm like, what's going on? He says, he's just upset. So I go and I talk to him and he starts crying. And he's shaking and he says, he says, Daddy, he said, I said, what's wrong, son? He said, I'm scared. I said, why? He said, well, today we learned the story of Adam and Eve. And that the devil deceived Adam and got God to kill him. And here's how his little mind worked. Four years old. If God, if the devil could deceive Adam and get him to do something wrong so that God would kill him, then the devil can deceive me and get me to do something wrong and God's going to kill me and I'm terrified that God's going to kill me. 
And I looked at him and I thought, well, that is actually pretty logical. (laughs) I mean, I was at a loss. I didn't know how to reason with him. What do you say? And so I'm just like, I'm trying to reason with him. I'm doing the best I could. Julia tried reasoning with him. Nothing was working. All of a sudden he looks up and he says, Daddy, he says, he points in the middle of the room. He says, there's Jesus. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, great. Why don't you ask him? (laughs) Why don't you ask him about the story and see what he tells you? And so he starts asking him and he just starts laughing. And I said, what did he tell you? And he said, he told me I could kick the devil in the pants or something like that. He's having this little conversation and his little spirit's lifting and all that fear and everything coming off of him. And there was a couple other things. Why don't you ask Jesus about this or that or something? And Pretty soon I guess I was taking too much advantage of it because then Jesus disappeared. (laughs) It's like, Daddy, Jesus is gone. But I thought, how powerful this is. See, in that day, the world will not see me. But you will see me. And because I live... See, you thought I was off my message. And because I live, you will live also. See, if a child can have that kind of faith and have that kind of relationship with the Lord, we can have that kind of faith and have that kind of relationship. But we have to have altars in our lives. We have to have places of exchange. Every morning I would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, sometimes till 5, sometimes till 7, sometimes till 10 in the morning, and I would have exchanges in my chair with heaven. And it opened a portal in my home that my son was able to experience and be blessed by. didn't happen overnight. That's where the, I guess, if you want to call it that, Sacrifice, part of it comes in. So get you a spot. Do what you need to do to make it a sacred place. And return to that place over and over when you meet with God. And watch what begins to happen there. When you're giving, whatever it is, your time, your money, whatever it is, do it with conscious intention that you're creating a space for an energy exchange, for sacrifice. Not, oh, this is sacrifice, but this is a gift that I'm giving. And I know I'm creating something in my life where the exchanges can begin to flow back through to me. Make sense? Let's stand up. I hope I didn't bore you. Yeah. At least, hopefully, I didn't offend anyone today. I tried really hard not to. Maybe I tried, or maybe uh, I didn't. Maybe I tried. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the goodness of who you are. We just want to take a moment, Lord, and worship here. And let you know how much we love you, how much we appreciate you, and how much we give you thanks for who you are. We just uh, appreciate your blessings and your abundance.
Amen. The Lord wants me to tell you one last thing. He just spoke to me and he said the altars, the altars that were built, listen to the statement carefully, were an externalization of what was in the heart. The altar really is in your heart. And when you build it outside, you're externalizing in the natural world what's in your heart. So because the exchange takes place in your heart, you're free not to build an altar. But don't think it's just religious. So you can also be free to build an altar as an expression of what's in your heart and know that it's holy. Does that make sense? You don't have to. You can be free not to. But some people think it's so religious, they're not free to do it. And if it's an expression from your heart, it's a good thing to do. Namaste. God bless you.